when the news broke on Friday, <clears throat> Dave Bechtold, as he usually does, just put pen to ink and uh, composed a prayer. And he sent it out to the pastors and the elders. And he kind of expressed in prayer what we were all feeling. And I thought that it would be appropriate to pray this prayer this morning. So if you all bow with me. Father in heaven, <clears throat> we don't know what to say. In our lack of understanding, we know that you are for us and that you are sovereign in all of your ways. Surround Josh and Annie with the power of your tangible love and faithfulness. Thank you for allowing Will to enter your presence in peace. We ache for those whom we love, and we press into you on their behalf with our painful groans and mustered-up words. Allow your goodness to be manifest in multiplied ways. Allow Tom and Alice and the family to travel in safety, and let this reunion be rich in healing and in comfort. Surround them with your love and presence, God. We love you, and we're grateful for your presence and truth in our times of great need. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> then, shortly after that, <clears throat> excuse me, Annie sent out a message, and this message was to all head pastors of churches around the city who Tom is in touch with on a regular basis. <clears throat> And I'm just going to read to you what Annie wrote. Thank you for your support of us. As you may have heard, our sweet William died yesterday on Friday from a sudden seizure and an apparent brain failure. The burial is tomorrow, which is today, at 2 p.m. So this afternoon, as Greg mentioned. We know that God still works miracles, and we're praying for one. Jesus said of Lazarus, I'm going there to wake him up. And then he did. If you are willing, would you consider at some point during the worship having your whole church body pray for William for one minute and then yell a Jericho tumbling shout, wake up, Will. We will be doing the same here after a night of worship. Thank you for considering. May his perfect will be done. I have to admit to you that when I first read this request, I struggled. I wrestled with doubt, unbelief, and my own rational mind. But I realized that this is not a desperate plea from a grieving mother. Anne goes on in this email to give a beautiful scriptural justification for praying this way. And when we stand before God at the end of time, I know that God will not chide us for praying an impossible prayer. In fact, I think just the opposite. I think God is proud of his children for praying a bold prayer in keeping with what he did when he was on the earth and in keeping with who he is as our father. God is sovereign, and he will do what he's going to do. But I believe God wants us to stand this morning in honor of the Flaherty's, in honor of this request, in honor of this simple act of faith, to stand in solidarity with them. And so I'd like you to stand with me right now, if you would. You don't have to do this. But here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us, as Annie instructed, for us to pray for a minute to ourselves. Just a moment of, a minute of silence where you can pray whatever is on your heart. At the end of that minute, I will lead us in a shout of faith for William. Let's pray.
okay? On a count of three, we're going to shout in faith, wake up, Will. One, two, three. Wake up, Will! Let's give the Lord a clap offering. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. I, I know that was the right thing to do. You may be seated. It's an honor for me to share with you this morning. For those who have been coming to City Church for some time, you know that in the first month of the new year, which is January, we spend each Sunday focusing on some of our core values as a church. Come as you are, connect with God, connect with people, and contend for more of God's presence. Those are the core values. If you got a bulletin this morning, you'll notice that those values are printed on the back page of your bulletin. The very first value, come as you are, is what I'm going to be talking about this morning. It's such an important value that we've even posted it on the wall right outside here, right by the donuts. (laughs) Enough said. When you think of the phrase, come as you are, who is extending that invitation to whom? Who's saying, come as you are? And who is it being said to? Now, I think most of us would probably say, well, this is City Church, this local church, extending an invitation to guests and visitors to come and worship with us and learn about God. And you would be right. That's indeed what it means. But I'd like to refine that focus this morning. And I'd like you to see this invitation in a little different way. Instead of it coming from the church, see it as an invitation coming directly from God himself. And instead of just to guests and visitors, see him extending that invitation to all of us in this sanctuary, including those who have been here for many years. Come as you are is the essence of who God is. It's the essence of Christianity. It sets Christianity apart from every other religion of the world. In every other religion of the world, performance and obeying certain rules is a key component of achieving your salvation. And of course, no one knows for sure if they've done enough to be saved, but that's what they're striving for. Whereas Christianity categorically rejects that notion. Christianity says it's impossible for a sinful man to please a holy God. The only way we can experience salvation is if he provides it, and that's exactly what he's done. When Jesus died on the cross and took the punishment for our sins, he made a way for us to be reconciled to God so that we could live with him forever. That is the good news of the gospel, and that's why we're here today. Romans 5.8 says, For God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners... Unable to save ourselves, helpless and alienated from him, Christ died for us. So when God extends an invitation for us to receive the salvation that he provides, he says, come as you are. The invitation is for all. No one has been excluded. The blood he shed, he shed for all. So all could come. And not only come, but come as we are. God has no illusions about who we are. He knows everything about us. Nothing is hidden from him. Whether you're here this morning and you don't even know if you believe in God or you are a seasoned believer, all he asks for us is to come as we are. He doesn't ask us to get cleaned up before we come. He doesn't say we have to talk, think, or act in a certain way. He doesn't say that we have to look, dress, or smell in a certain way. He doesn't ask us to pretend or be something other than who we are. He simply says, come as you are. His invitation is compelling but baffling at the same time because in light of our own sinfulness, in light of our unworthiness, the love and the acceptance and the forgiveness that he offers is dissonant. It's hard to comprehend. 
This undeserved grace doesn't make sense, but it's compelling and it's beautiful. And this is why the broken and the sick and the demon-possessed and the poor and the prostitutes and those that were marginalized by society were attracted to Jesus. Come as you are, with no pretense, no shame, no guilt, no fear, just come. The most profound invitation to come is given to us in the last couple of verses of the last chapter of the Bible, Revelations twenty-two seventeen. It says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of, excuse me, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Do you hear in this verse, as well as in your spirit this morning, in this new year, the invitation to come? Are you thirsty for more of what God has for you? Do you wish to drink freely from the water of life? To respond to the invitation, of course, we have to hear the invitation. It's an invitation for all, but you have to hear it for yourself. In this new year, do you hear him inviting you to something more, something deeper than what you've known? Do you hear him inviting you to leave your lesser lovers and discover anew the lover of your soul? Do you hear him inviting you to come? I do. And when we come, we need to come as we are, as we really are. It's so easy for us as human beings to deceive ourselves and to think into thinking that we're something other than what we are. Paul said, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment. The human heart is inherently prideful and can come up with all kinds of justifications about why we are the way we are. But to respond to God's invitation to come as we are requires that we be honest about who we are, to admit our faults and weaknesses, and cast off the tendency to cover up, to hide, or to pretend. The only way to respond to an invitation to come as we are is to come in humility and reverence. I want to take some time this morning to look at this incredible invitation to come as we are in the light of the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. So we're going to spend some time this morning in Luke 15. We're going to start in Luke 15, verses 11 through 13. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Point one, what it means to leave home. In this passage, we have a very vivid picture of a young man wanting to leave home and venture out on his own. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. That's a natural part of growing up and becoming a man. Our goal, of course, as parents is to train and prepare our children for that, to train them to be self-sufficient, well-adjusted, responsible, God-loving adults. At least that's, that's our plan. It's not always how it works, but that's what we're trying. But that's not obviously what's going on here in this parable. There's something that's drastically wrong. And even before we discover that the younger son squanders his wealth with wild living, we know that something is not right between he and his dad. How do we know? By the simple fact that he asks his father for his share of the inheritance. You see, Luke tells us these events so simply and so matter-of-factly, but the act of asking for an inheritance in that culture was hurtful, offensive, and contrary to the one of the most cherished and revered traditions of that culture. Traditionally, the inheritance was not distributed until the death of the father. Even after the inheritance was divided, the possessions were still in the possession of the father. And even if they were signed off to the boys, the father still owned it and could live off the proceeds from that inheritance. 
The younger son demanded his inheritance not only before his father was dead, but he also demanded that he took ownership of it so he could dispose of it as he pleased. His action was not just a slap in the face. It was a blatant rejection of his father, of his home, of his community, and all the values associated with them. It's the, it's the cultural equivalent of saying, Dad, to heck with you and this family. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I wish you were dead. That's essentially what he was saying based on the culture of that family. Now, I don't know exactly what all the issues were between this younger son and his father, but I can imagine that they're not unlike a lot of the issues that we face in our lives. Maybe it was us with our parents and what we went through with them. Or maybe it's what you're going through or facing with your sons and daughters. But it's this deep-seated desire for independence. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it without my parents interfering. I don't like this family's rules. They're restrictive and unfair. I want to do the things that my friends get to do. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. Whatever the issues, this is a familiar generational story of a rebellious son and a broken-hearted father. Now, maybe some of you can identify with the thoughts and the attitudes and the actions of the younger son. I know that many of you come from broken families with difficult backgrounds, and maybe you felt compelled to leave your own home for some reason. For you, this story might be painfully familiar. For others of you, maybe your reaction is a little bit more like my own. Over the years, when I've read this parable, I didn't think that I had much in common with the younger son. I loved my parents. I loved my home. <clears throat> I wasn't a defiant child. I, I didn't rebel against my dad. I, I embraced the values that my parents taught me as a young boy. In fact, as the firstborn, I was pretty compliant. And I didn't like conflict. And I, I really exerted a lot of energy trying to please my parents and my elders. So I always loved the story of the prodigal son and what it taught. But I, but I always thought it applied to someone else. But as I took an honest look at my life and I really allowed the light of God's word to shine in my heart, I found that I had much more in common with the younger son that I had ever imagined. There are many less vis visible ways that I have preferred the distant country over my father's home. There are many ways that I have rejected the invitation of my father to come as you are. God began to show me that leaving home is not just a physical act, but it's an attitude of the heart. Every time I choose to go my own way, instead of doing things God's way, I'm leaving home. Every time I remain in some sort of a funk and I whine and complain and question God's goodness, I'm leaving home. Every time I rely on my own strength or wisdom or knowledge or cleverness, Instead of depending upon God, I'm leaving home. Every time I choose to walk in offense or unforgiveness, I'm leaving home. Every time out of shame or guilt, I choose to stay away from God rather than letting him help me. I am leaving home and I'm going to a distant land. Leaving home is a denial of the reality that I belong to God and he belongs to me. Leaving home is living as though I didn't have a home and somehow I have to search for it out there someplace. Point number two, choosing the voices that we listen to. <clears throat> home is that part of me where I can hear the voice that says, Come, son. Come as you are. My arms are always open to you. That's home. You are my beloved son or daughter, and my favor rests on you. Home is that voice that sustains me in the midst of darkness and trouble. Home is that voice of love that speaks to me that, to let me know that I'm deeply valued. When I hear that voice... I know that I am home with God and I have nothing to fear. Yet over and over, for some mysterious reason, I leave home 
and the voice of my father, and I run off to faraway places to search for love and acceptance. Sometimes we do this in big ways, sometimes in very small ways. Sometimes I just get distracted or I believe a lie, and then I become deaf to the Father's voice. The question is why? Why do I leave home where I belong? The true voice of love speaks softly and gently in the hidden places of my heart. And even though God could level mountains with the sound of his voice, he chooses not to speak with a voice that forces itself upon us, like an angry parent who is shouting his child into submission. Rather, it's a gentle voice that can only be heard with an ear of faith. Elijah learned that truth when he was seeking God in the mountain. First came the hurricane, but God was not in the hurricane. And then came the earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. And then came the fire, but God was not in the fire. And then came the gentle whisper. And finally, Elijah heard the voice of God. Elijah heard God's voice and experienced his presence in a gentle whisper. As it says in Psalm 45, be still, because that's the only way you're going to hear. Be still and know that I am God. If we don't still ourselves and listen with ears of faith, we will not hear the gentle whisper of God speaking to our hearts and calling us home. You see, there are many voices out there. You all know those voices. They're voices of, that are loud. They're seductive voices. They're voices that, that convey false promises. Jesus was familiar with those loud voices. After Jesus was baptized, he heard this beautiful, affirming voice of the Father say, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus knew that his home was with the Father. He had all that he needed in the Father. Yet immediately after that experience, Jesus was led into the wilderness where he was subjected to many voices, and those voices promised him success, popularity, and power. We hear those voices every, every day, don't we? It's how the enemy uses voices of distraction, voices of entertainment, of pleasure, of social media, and sometimes even the well-meaning advice of friends or family. And this is what some of these voices sound like. This is what you need, son, in order to be happy. Happiness is not here. You have to go out there someplace and find it. You're never going to make it unless you prove yourself. You have to do better than others. You're not going to compete unless you bend the rules and take a few shortcuts. Where are your connections? Of course, you know it's not who you know, not what you know, but who you know. Don't show your weakness. People will take advantage of you. You have to be smart, successful, powerful, and good-looking and popular in order to get what you want. So work hard at getting these things. It's what really matters. It's what you need to be happy. There's lots of voices out there saying those things. These voices are always there, and they reach into those inner places where I question my own self-worth. These voices want me to prove myself and to others that I'm worth being loved, and they keep pushing me to do everything possible to gain acceptance. And then, after years of striving for these things and never quite attaining them, because it's an illusion, sometimes we begin to hear even darker voices, voices of discouragement that say, you'll never measure up, you'll never make it, it'll never be any different, it's the same old stuff over and over. Voices of despair that say, what's the use? You should just give up. Voices that say, life is not fair. The hurts of life are just too great to bear. Why not medicate yourself? Why not enjoy the pleasures of this world that at least will bring some satisfaction and joy? Or why not give up altogether and take your own life? Anyone familiar with any of those voices? As long as I stay home and I remain in the sound of that loving, quiet, affirming voice that calls me his beloved, these questions and these voices have no sway over me. I can identify them as lies of the enemy and I can cast them off. But if I forget that voice of unconditional love, 
that's always inviting me to come as I am, then these other voices begin to sneak in there and pull me away into that distant country. Let me give you a personal example from my own life. Without going into a lot of details, about 25 or 30 years ago, when I was probably in my early 40s, I was in a place in my life where I was very discouraged. I didn't know if it was a midlife crisis or what was going on, but life wasn't promising what I, what I thought it would deliver. I kept hearing voices saying, there's got to be more. This is not how it's supposed to be. And I began to look for happiness out there somewhere. I had thought what I needed to make me happy. I had a beautiful wife. I had three lovely girls. We had a beautiful house. We had pets. We had cars. We had a good church. I had a good job. But the voices kept telling me that real happiness was someplace else, somewhere else. At a vulnerable moment, I saw an infomercial on TV that promised a better life in a real estate venture. After convincing my wife that I needed to do this, I gathered a fairly large sum of money and I left home and I went to that distant land. While I was there, I was treated like a king. The best hotels, the best amenities. I listened to rich men and women who had foolproof methods of getting rich myself. In the evenings, they provided parties and food and drinks and music, and they gave us a taste what would look like if we became really successful. I saw married men and women who were behaving as though they weren't. It was all being presented to me on a silver platter. And in the midst of this, as I thought about all the things that I saw in front of me, it was like I was having an out-of-body experience or I was waking up from a bad dream and I said to myself, what in the world am I doing? And what in the world am I doing here? God began to speak to me in that soft, familiar voice, the voice of home. He said, you don't belong here. This is not your home. This is not what I created you for. Come home where you belong. It's not out there. I am what you need. I am what you're looking for. Come home. Come as you are. You belong to me, and I belong to you. That's the voice I began to hear again. And as long as I keep running around in that distant land, asking questions like, do you love me? Do I have something to offer? Am I worthy? I give all the power to those voices, and I end up in bondage to them. Because the world is happy to answer back, yes, we love you, if you've got something to offer, if you're good-looking, intelligent, and wealthy, if you've got a good education, a good job, and good connections, if you produce much, sell much, and buy much, yeah, we love you. You see, the world is a terrible lover because her love is conditional. The world promises much, but delivers little and never meets the deepest cravings of our heart. I am the lost son. Every time I listen to those other voices and search for unconditional love in places where it can't be found. Let's continue reading in Luke 15, starting with verse 14. Speaking of the younger son, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the land in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Point number three, taking an honest inventory.
What a picture we have here. The young son, full of optimism, pride, ambition, and money, determined to live his life far away from the father and his family, sets out to take on the world. He returns with nothing. His money, his health, his honor, his self-respect, his reputation have all been squandered. He's empty, lonely, and defeated. He has become a slave of the world. The farther he ran away from the place where his father dwelled, the less he was able to hear the voice that called him the beloved. And the less he heard the voice that called him the beloved, the more entangled he became in the deceitful web of all that the world has to offer. The younger son became fully aware of how lost he was when no one showed him any interest. They noticed him as long as there was something they could take from him for their own purposes. But as soon as the money and the gifts were all gone, he ceased to exist. When there's nothing left to take, you're expendable. When no one in the world would give him even the food that he was giving the pigs, he realized that in the eyes of the world, his value was even less than that of a pig. When he realized that he was no longer valued, he felt the impact of his own isolation and loneliness. All at once, he clearly saw the path that he had chosen and where it would lead him. He understood finally his own death wish and that if he continued on that path, it would lead towards self-destruction. So the first time, he realized that he was really lost. And this was a lostness that brought him to his senses. Until we understand the depth of our own lostness, we're not ready to be found. Until we understand the depth of our own lostness, we're not ready to go home to the loving embrace of our Father. Who am I? Where do I belong? Having lost everything, the young son came to the bottom line of his own identity. When he found himself desiring to be treated as one of the pigs, he realized, I'm not a pig. I'm a man. In fact, I'm a son. I'm the son of a father. The younger son's return home begins the moment he starts to reclaim his understanding of sonship. Once the revelation of who he really is dawns on him, he starts to hear, though faintly, that tender voice calling him. And that's when the journey home begins. Come, son. Come as you are. I'm waiting for you. Although he knew that he didn't deserve it, the awareness of his father's love gave him the strength and the courage to begin that journey home. <clears throat> The same is true for us. We have a choice to make about whether or not to embrace our sonship or let the world continue to find our identity. Now, on the way home, the younger son had a lot of things to think about. He encountered a huge obstacle that almost stopped him dead in his tracks, and that obstacle had to do with his understanding of who the father was. So on the way home, he prepares this scenario in his own mind. He devises a speech that will never fully be delivered. And the speech goes like this in verse 18 and 19. Father, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. You see, on the surface, when you first read this, you see an attitude of humility and repentance but if you look under the surface, you begin to see some deep insecurities in the sun, insecurities that many of us share as well. Although he sees, he's beginning to see his identity as a son, he doesn't really know how he's going to be received when he gets home. Will an explanation be demanded? Will he be welcomed or will he be disowned? Will he be forgiven or will he be shunned? He's not sure. He's traveling in the right direction, but boy, there's a lot of ambivalence inside. He admits that he was unable to make it on his own and that he would be far better at, treated as a slave in his father's house than being an outcast in a foreign land, but he was still far from trusting the father's love. He knows that he's the son, but he prepares himself to accept the status of a hired man just so that he'll be able to survive. This repentance is not a repentance in the light 
of the love of a forgiving father whose grace is far greater than any sin. It's a repentance that offers the possibility of survival. I will go and ask for forgiveness, not so that it can be restored as a son necessarily, but I will receive at least minimum punishment and be allowed to survive under the condition of hard labor. From this perspective, God the Father seems harsh and demanding, one whose full forgiveness is uncertain, one who tolerates me at best. This understanding of the Father leaves me feeling guilty about the past and uncertain or worried about the future. It leaves me feeling unworthy and unsure about where I stand. This is where many of us live, and it deeply affects the nature of our relationship with God. My earthly father was a good man, and he was a good dad, and I know that he loved me deeply. But as I was growing up, he didn't know how to express that love in an unconditional manner. Many of my dad's, much of my dad's approval came from the things that I did, from my performance, more than who I was as a person. And even the things that I did right never quite seemed to be enough. There was always something I could be doing better. When I was a young boy, one of my jobs was to mow the lawn, and we had a lot of quack grass or crab grass in the yard. And so dad asked me to mow it both ways, not just back and forth, but up and down so I could make sure I got the grass cut the right way. And in addition to that, of course, I had to edge and I did it with a hand edger, one of those hand trimmers. The lawnmower was one of those blade type lawnmowers. So all of that work plus sweeping up at the end. And I really worked hard to try to make it so that when my dad got home, I could hear his voice of approval. But when my dad came home from work, I would often hear about the things that I had done wrong or had forgotten to do. I remembered when my dad <clears throat> attended, <clears throat> excuse me, one of my college gymnastic meets at UW in the early 70s. Here I am as an adult. I had just hit the best parallel bar routine of my life. In fact, I broke the school record and I held that record for 10 years afterwards. And when, at the end of the meet, <clears throat> when my dad came over to me, I thought for sure I was going to hear words of affirmation and praise. But instead, I heard a word about how I could have done better and scored higher. It's like giving a compliment was not in my dad's vocabulary. Doing the right thing wasn't worth a compliment because that's what's expected, you see. I learned later in life, of course, that my dad, this was my dad's way of pushing us to be better. My dad grew up in poverty as an orphan, and he had to work hard to get ahead. His demeanor toward us as the hard taskmaster was his way of helping us children achieve a better life. Needless to say, my concept of the fatherhood of God was formed in part by my own relationship with my dad. And for that reason, for much of my Christian life, I saw God as someone who I could never please, no matter how hard I tried. As a result, my early life as a believer was based on a performance-based Christianity. It always made me feel uncertain about where I stood. Am I doing enough? Is God pleased with me? Does he really like me? Am I really forgiven? Like the younger son, so many of us settle for this come-in-the-back-door, hired-hand form of Christianity instead of boldly entering the throne of grace with full assurance of love, forgiveness, and acceptance. So even though the son didn't know exactly what his reception would look like when he came home, he decided to come home nonetheless without any excuses, without any justifications to accept whatever the result might be. Going on in Luke 15, verse 20. <clears throat> but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Point number four, a revelation of the Father's love. You notice that the father doesn't even give the son a chance to finish his sentences and his explanations before he says, quick, bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the sandals, and prepare the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate and have a feast. This is the ultimate picture of come as you are. I don't care what you've done, son. I don't care about your past and all the mistakes that you've made. You've come home. My love covers you. You are forgiven and restored. You are my son, and I am your father. In order to come home and stay home, you have to have a deep revelation of this kind of love from the father. Look what we see in this passage from the words of Jesus himself. We see this heartsick God who with a tear in his eye longly waits for his son to come home. We see a God who, in spite of what his son has done, is filled with compassion and runs out and throws his arms around his son to smother him with hugs and kisses. We see a God who is so full of mercy and love that he forgives even before his son has had a chance to explain himself. We see a a God who is generous, who restores our inheritance, who showers you with undeserved blessings, a robe only worn by princes and great men to symbolize salvation and right standing. A ring worn only by the rich as a seal of unconditional love and belonging. And sandals not worn by slaves who were barefoot to signify restoration and empowerment. And then a fattened calf to demonstrate the abundant blessings of a generous father. And finally, we see a God who delights to celebrate his love for his children No holding back. No expense is too great. When it comes to making the heart of the Father glad, nothing comes close but seeing the joy of his children restored and reconciled. And when it happens, he can't help himself. He's got to celebrate. And oh, does he know how to celebrate. Make no mistake about it. When our home homecoming comes, there's going to be a party. And it's going to be a great feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. In this same chapter, chapter 15 of Luke, the story that precedes the story of the prodigal son is the story of the lost sheep and the story of the lost coin. In each story, when the sheep is found and when the coin is found, the reaction is the same. There is joy, there's delight, there's celebration. These are amazing parables of a heartsick God who longs to be in fellowship with his children. We see a God of compassion, of mercy and forgiveness. We see a generous God who loves to restore and redeem. We see a God who delights to celebrate his love for his children. Is this the kind of God that you know? Is this the kind of heavenly father that you've come to know? If not, I pray that you will receive a revelation of the Father's love because you know what? That's who he is. Can you see yourself like I did and do in the lost son? Is that quiet voice speaking to you even now, telling you that it's time to leave the distant land and come home? How many of you find yourself in the place of wandering back and forth between the distant land and your father's house? Sometimes we we straddle both lands, don't we? Some of us are in the distant land and some of us is at home. We've learned how to be chameleon Christians who know what to say, how to say it, and we know how to blend into our surroundings. But deep down inside, you know that you belong in your father's home. But we keep turning away. We turn away sometimes to that pleasure or that distraction that lasts for a moment to that addiction that doesn't satisfy, to that relationship that makes you cheap and empty and even more lonely, to that place of squandering your gifts that God has given you. Are you ready to come home? Are you ready to respond to the invitation to come as you are? 
Because if you come as you are, I promise you, God will transform you into the person that he created you to be, the person that you really are. When I was a young believer, <clears throat> Billy Graham was still doing his huge evangelistic services all over the world. Billy Graham was always inviting people to come as you are. At the end of his services, he would always invite people to receive Christ or to rededicate their lives to Christ. And the hymn that he always used at the end of his services was called, does anybody remember? Just as I am. Just as I am. It's an old hymn, but the words are powerful. I found a version of that hymn that I'd like to play for you this morning. And as you sing along, I'd like you to prayerfully consider about what God is speaking to you this morning. If you hear, remember it takes ears of faith, but if you hear God speaking to you softly and he's beckoning to you to come as you are and he's inviting you to a deeper walk with him, to a deeper place with him, to a more consistent walk with him, maybe to coming into a relationship with him for the first time, I would like you to use this song as your response song. We're not going to have prayer teams up here, but during this song, it's as, as you're prayerfully considering the words that you're seeing up on the screen. If this is speaking to you and you feel God inviting you to come as you are, I would encourage you to come down to the front and just spend some time with the Lord. I can't think of a better way to start the new year than to rededicating yourself to Christ to come home, to stay home, and accept his invitation to come as you are. So let's listen to that song and respond as the Lord leads you. At the end of that song, I'll come up and I'll dismiss us in prayer. I want to continue to give you an opportunity to respond however God leads you. Certainly you can respond right where you are, but the altars are open. Again. <laughs> and you're welcome to dismiss yourself, especially if you need to pick up your kids, but I just ask that we leave the sanctuary a special place where God is speaking to us and meeting with us right now. Keep your conversations out for the hallway. God bless you, thank you, and Happy New Year. Lay down your heart, come as you are.
for the hopeless, for all who have strayed. Sit at the table, come taste the grace. There's a rest for the weary, the rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. There's hope. There is hope for the hopeless, for all those who have sinned. Sit at the table, come taste the grace. There's a rest for the weary, the rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. There is joy for the morning. 